Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. Thank you for the absolute certainty that we have, that he paid the penalty for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day and is seated at your right hand. These are certainties. We know that he's coming again. We long for his coming. We look with eagerness, but we do not know the when. The important thing is not the when, because the most important day is not the day he comes, it's today. How am I going to use the blessed hope of his return to affect my attitude, my motives, my actions today? I pray that you will help us to get that perspective and let it change our life because there are people out there without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life, and we are on a rescue mission. Help us to play our part. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The Olivet Discourse is one of three major discourses or sermons of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these include what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is a discourse in Galilee, which is recorded in Matthew 5 through 7. Then we have our current study, the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is in Matthew 24 and 25, the most clear record of it. There are portions of it in Mark 13 and Luke 21, and we'll take note of a couple of the differences along the way, but our the majority of our time is going to be in Matthew 24 and 25. And then we have the Upper Room Discourse. And the Upper Room Discourse is in John 13 through 17. The main reason that we use the word discourse for the Olivet Discourse and the Upper Room Discourse is because discourse implies some give and take. It implies questions and answers. It implies some discussion that took place during the course of it. And so that these three discourses are dispensational. Dispensational. In fact, without a dispensational approach, you'll confuse them. You'll misinterpret them. What do I mean by dispensational? Dispensationalism, of course, is a theological position, but it's also a Bible study method. We draw a line, and we call that line time. We put it within parentheses because before time was eternity past, and after time is eternity future, which, by the way, as difficult as it is for you and I to comprehend it, are the same to God. God is not subject to time, and because we sometimes forget that, we come up with some very goofy ideas about how, how God deals with man. So if we take all of human history and divide it in half, we put the cross in the middle of human history. And that means that it divides between two periods of human history. How would we designate those periods of history prior to the cross? We tend to call it the Old Testament. And Old Testament means Old Covenant. And the time that follows the Lord Jesus Christ, we tend to designate as New Testament. If you believe in that distinction, whether you realize it or not, you are a dispensationalist. Dispensationalism teaches that God's word is revealed progressively. We know more by the time we get to the book of Revelation than we did 
when we started in the book of Genesis. It is progressive revelation. Now, we can also make a couple of other divisions, and I'll keep it real simple for right now. We can divide the Old Testament period in half, because up until Genesis chapter 11, we were dealing only with Gentiles. So I'm going to put a big G here, because we tend to refer to that as the age of the Gentiles. In other words, from Adam through Noah and his family. And then we have the age of the Jews. Some would refer to it as the Mosaic Age, and that's fine, but uh, it starts quite a ways before Moses, from Abraham to Jesus Christ. Think about this for a moment. Jesus Christ lived not in the church age, but in the age of the Jews. In the, in the uh, Olivet Discourse, he is not talking to the church, he is talking to the Jews. And I'm going to show you why that's important, and I'm going to show you the false conclusions that we come up with if we don't keep this distinct. Now, please don't get alarmed and start running out and saying that I don't believe these passages apply to us. There's a difference between interpretation and application. All of Scripture is written for us, but not all of Scripture is written to us. We need to make that distinction. We can divide the New Testament period, and I'm just going to do it very simply. We'll be spending quite a bit of time on this. Between the time of the coming of the Holy Spirit and the rapture of the church, we call this the church age. Paul refers to it as the dispensation of the grace of God uh, and the dispensation of the mystery. Dispensation refers to a uh, in, the word is actually economia. What does that sound like? It's an economy. But economia in the Greek means the law of the household. So it's talking about the standard that God has set for the household of his people at that period of time. And then, of course, we know that one day I'm going to leave out the tribulation, which is coming up. That'll be here with the T. We are going to have the wonderful kingdom age. The time that Matthew 24 and 25 are looking forward to when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in power and glory and we are going to share his kingdom with him forever and ever. Simple distinction between these three messages, the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse, and the Upper Room Discourse, and then I'm going to show them to you on the overhead. The Sermon on the Mount was Jesus speaking to Israel, presenting himself to them as their king. In other words, I am your Messiah, and these are the standards of my kingdom. And he began with what? What we refer to as the Beatitudes. What a wonderful thing to begin the message of the kingdom with blessing. But the blessing had certain requirements. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The idea there is humility. And all relationship with God begins with the attitude of humility. Humility is a recognition that I am the creature, he is the creator, and therefore I must humble myself before him. And if we start with that attitude, we, are, we have made a good start in our relationship to the Lord. Then we have the Olivet Discourse, the focus of our study, and the Olivet Discourse is primarily dealing with the results of Israel's rejection of Christ as their king. 
So he came and he said, I am your king. Here is the platform of my kingdom. This is how we're going to rule. This is a true understanding of the meaning of the law of Moses and so on and so forth. And they rejected him. And you'll remember there are several parables that run along this line where the king called to the people and asked them to come and submit to him. And they said, what? We will not have this man to rule over us which is essentially the same thing they said when they cried out for Jesus to be crucified, saying, let his blood be on us and on our children. As a consequence of their rejection of Jesus Christ as their Savior, we have this message. And that's why there are some very dark and gloomy parts to it, because they are going to bring great suffering on themselves. But it's dealing primarily, if we look at Matthew 24 and 25 in the simplest possible way, we are looking at a portion of Scripture dealing with the tribulation. There are two other passages of Scripture that help explain Matthew 24 and 25, and I'll just tell you this in passing. Uh, you can take it on board mentally, and you can search it out yourself. Matthew 24 and 25 is an overview of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation matches up perfectly with Matthew 24 and 25. Then we come to the upper room, and the upper room is Jesus speaking to the church. And as he speaks to the church, he is laying down the foundations uh, on which the church will be built, the unique characteristic of the church, which can be summarized in this statement when he said the Holy Spirit has been with you, but he is coming and he will be in you forever. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the most unique thing that ever happened to human beings on this earth. And the effects of it and the impacts of it in our life are absolutely astounding. The church age is summarized by the Apostle Paul in two words, in Christ. And this is what we call positional truth, our total union with Jesus Christ, in which we share his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We share his position. Summarized in another way by Paul in Ephesians 1.6 when he said that we are accepted in the Beloved. I hope that you have this in mind. I hope you never forget it. God, because of what he has done through Christ, because of your redemption through Christ, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, because you have been indwelt by his spirit, because you have been united with Jesus Christ, when God the Father looks at you, his child, he sees Jesus Christ. You share in all that he is, in all that he has, in all that he has done. My friends, that's bigger than anything you will ever do. Don't let someone minimize or obscure the magnificent work of Jesus Christ by placing the burden on your back. Yes, we need to grow. Yes, we need to be fruitful. Yes, we need to have lives that are productive. But you don't get people in the spiritual realm to be productive by scaring them, browbeating them, or shaming them. The way to help if... Probably some of you ladies are like my wife. She likes to plant things. I've noticed that she's never planted anything and then walked over with a stick and beat it every day to make the flowers come, the fruit come, or anything else. 
What do you do? You nurture it. And if you nurture it and you care for it, it will naturally produce. And Christians will naturally live fruitful lives if they're given the truth on which that life is supposed to be built. So, I want to just consider how these messages fit together within a dispensational context because you may have never thought this before. I do hope that by being here you'll see some things that you never saw before. If you take these three messages and reverse them, you have the story of future history. Here is the upper room discourse, church age. Consider the fact that in every epistle, every truth that you read has its germ or its seed thought in the upper room discourse. You cannot find one thing that Paul is saying, that Peter is saying, that James is saying, that doesn't somehow link. As a matter of fact, John, I love John. The epistle of 1 John is a commentary on the upper room discourse. If you read 1 John as a commentary on the upper room discourse, it'll completely transform your thinking about 1 John. So there's the upper room. Then, all of that discourse, that's tribulational. That's talking about the terrible judgments that are going to fall on the Jewish nation and the world prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And in the kingdom, guess what we come back to? We come back to the Sermon on the Mount. Isn't it amazing? It's like the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, look, I want to give you a road map because if you don't have a road map, you're going to be very confused about where you're going, about what's coming, what's around the next turn. But if we just understand these simple messages, it's like we can turn off the television and turn off the news and stop wringing our hands and stop saying what's going to happen next because we already know. All of these events in your life and my life whether it's national or international, and even personal, they're little blips along the road, they're little potholes along the path that the Lord has laid out for you and I to live. And so the more we know about it, obviously, the easier it's going to be for us.